Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. After taking the thank, I'm sorry, and he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. If you look at world religions, you study the deaths of famous world religious leaders, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, they all die relatively later in life. They die of natural causes and in the arms of their followers and or family. Now, I don't say this to demean them in any way. Would we all be so lucky to live that sort of life? But contrast that with Jesus. He dies at 33, at most having three years of ministry. He dies prematurely, killed by the imperial power of Rome in a very tragic death. Also, he's crucified. It's the most shameful way to die in that world. Not only very painful and slow, but it was a spectacle. This is what we do with insurrectionists and riffraff, is what the cross says. They put, put up thieves and riffraff in the air for everyone to gawk at. And his followers are understandably left confused. We'll see one betray him, and we'll see another one deny him very quickly after this event. And it makes sense why other religions did well. Their followers were victorious. Their followers lived long lives. It worked. There was something for their followers to tap into, to say, this is for me. I understand why I would follow this person. Why would anyone, however, follow Jesus? Why would they say, I want that. That's the message for me. And yet Christianity explodes, explodes throughout the Mediterranean basin. With everyone using it as a primary symbol of their faith, what? A cross. A 
cross, a symbol of shame, of dejection, and they wear it with pride. They wear it with gladness. And what do they do when they gather together? They eat a meal. They eat a meal that had Jesus' death on the cross at the very center of it. Luke's later book, The Acts of the Apostles, tells us that when these churches gathered, they shared bread. They broke bread together. They commemorated this event, Jesus' death and his, and his resurrection. They commemorated that with a meal. Why do we end our service each and every week with a meal that draws us deeper into death? Why, if you're not a Christian, would you ever want to say, I want that? That's the message for me, Jesus' death. Well, we're going to look at that and try to answer those questions by looking at the Lord's Supper from three perspectives. Jesus' explanation that he gives of the Lord's Supper, the disciples' experience of the Lord's Supper, and then the exercise of the Lord's Supper, how you and I exercise this meal. But before we do that, let's pray for our time together. Father, it seems a strange, strange thing to pray that we would go deeper into your death, that we would lose ourselves, that we would give up more ground that we are withholding so that you can step farther into our lives. It seems strange that we would pray for the end of ourselves so that we can begin to live with you, but Lord, that is what we pray. That is what the Lord's Supper conveys to us, that it is us coming to an end so that you can begin us anew. And I pray that that would happen in no small way this morning with each of us this morning, whether we come with great doubt and skepticism or whether we come with fear and worry, whether we come with ambivalence because we're bored. Father, help us to take a step for, towards you just as you have taken a step towards us in this meal. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the turning points of the civil rights movement was the Freedom March in Selma, Alabama. And Martin Luther King and his followers marched, or were going to march, from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery. And he made sure that all of those who participated in this march went through a long period of prayer and spiritual preparation so that they might be rid of any resentment towards the, uh, the oppressors that, might, that they may meet on the way. He prepared for them to endure persecution. So they solemnly march out of Selma, and shortly thereafter, on a bridge, they're confronted by angry policemen and angry deputy sheriffs, and they tell them to turn around. And Martin Luther King says, we've come too far to turn back now. And he and his fellow marchers bowed on the bridge and began to pray. And the policemen and the sheriffs come in, and in the ensuing moments, the marchers are beaten, bloody, and they're just left lying on the roadside of the bridge. The whole scene is captured on live television. And one of those watching that day recalled their reaction. They've won. King and his followers have won. The civil rights movement is victorious. Huh? They're beaten. They're bloodied. They're stopped in their tracks. And yet this person watching this live feed understands somehow the upside-down way in which God works his justice and mercy, that losers become winners and winners become losers. Martin Luther King knew that triumph belongs to those who love their enemies, 
and that the way of Christ was the only way in which racism could be effectively challenged. He saw bowing his head and letting the worst instincts of humanity do their worst to him as the only way things would be different. The cross should have caused people to run, and in fact it did for a while. Why would I want to be connected with a religious leader who's crucified? Why would I put my life at risk like that? But the way Jesus explains the cross, the way he explains his death and coming resurrection in the context of this meal transforms its meaning from one of rejection and shame and loss into a meal of victory and hope. The meal that we celebrate each and every week as I talk about it, we talk about it as not just a memorial, a commemoration of Jesus' death, but it's a, a looking forward, a future hope that is projected. In verse 13, he says, They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. More on that in a moment. But the Passover, you're not supposed to just eat it. You're supposed to explain it. The head of the household sets out the Passover, and then he stands up and gives an explanation of why they're eating this meal yet again. And normally they would say something like this, that this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. They suffered so that we might be delivered. Jesus says, this is the bread of his affliction, to bring you out of even greater bondage and judgment Then the Exodus, years ago, he is saying, we ate this meal before God redeemed his people from Pharaoh, but tonight, tonight, God is delivering his people from bondage to sin and death entirely. It's a climactic climactic event in the history of Israel and in the whole world. And if you'll take and eat, the climactic event will be in your life as well. Do this in Remembrance, Jesus says. But memory in the Hebrew context, in classical Hebrew, is different from how we think of it. Memory for us is recalling to mind something that's stuck in the recesses of our brain, something that we know, something that we've seen, something that we've heard. That's our, our memory. But in classical Hebrew, history is something that happens to other people. Your memory is something that's happened to you. It's something that you embody. It's something that's changed who you are. The Passover was not simply a memorial, but it was a reliving of this critical event. It was reliving this event that happened in in their history as if it's part of their very own individual and family stories. God's deliverance was not just for their forefathers, but somehow they were there too. It's part of their memory, not just part of their history. Do this in remembrance of me. Reenact this event of the Passover. And if you're a Christian, what Jesus is saying here is that you are bound to perpetually reenact this event because it's not only remembering the history of Jesus' death, the history of his resurrection, but it's yours. It's not just history, but it's a memory. It's part of who you are. If you're a Christian and you come to this table, it gets embedded into your very soul, embedded into who you are, embedded into your story. It's not just history, but, me- but memory. You must perpetually die if you want to live. In this strange upside-down economy of God, you die to live. You go back to go forward. Your memory contains your future. 
you relive Jesus' victory through death. That's how Jesus begins to explain it. He gives the context of a Passover meal to talk about what he is doing is fulfilling that Passover meal. He is the true center of that Passover meal. But why death? Why does he have to die? Of all of the things that you could think of that God would provide for salvation for his people, why death? Why the death of his own son? Why did he use a meal as the central symbol for his death? We need to talk about how the disciples would have experienced it. Jesus' explanation, now the disciples experience. Well, you needed a few things for Passover meal. If you paid attention as we were reading that rather long passage of our Old Testament reading, there were a couple of things. You needed unleavened bread, which symbolized the haste with which the Israelites were, had to leave Egypt. Also, you had bitter herbs, which signified the bitterness of the slavery that they endured for hundreds of years. And then you had wine, actually four cups of wine, representing the four great promises in Exodus 6. But it's not enough for a meal. What's missing? The main course, the lamb. There has to be a lamb at the Passover meal. Israel was enslaved for hundreds of years, and this is the background quickly to the Passover, and Pharaoh obstinately refused to let them go. And it's easy to understand from his perspective. They were his workforce. It's just as those in the American South refused to give up slavery, not only because of the ideal, but also because the institution was basically the economic background, backbone of the South. So they fight to death to protect slavery as an institution. And Pharaoh is willing to do the very same thing. Moses and Aaron go to, them over, go to him over and over with new plagues promised, and Pharaoh endures them all. Frogs, lice, uh, flies, a bloody river. It's gross. But he brings and says, there's, I've given, God has sent nine plagues on you. There's one more to come. There's a final plague. Pharaoh, let my people go. The final blow is that the angel of judgment will pass over the land to strike dead the firstborn in every family as a strike against oppression and violence and enslavement. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, that sounds kind of severe. That's the sort of God that I don't want anything to do with. That's harsh and severe and judgmental and all of that. But do you look at the Civil War the same way? Do you look at Lincoln? as severe and harsh and judgmental? Or do you look at him as a hero, even as he enacts things that send hundreds of thousands of people to their death, we look at him as a hero? Because why? His decisions, even though they led to death, brought judgment on a terrible institution and put an end to slavery soon thereafter. And additionally, look, who's the judgment against? You say, well, the Egyptians, clearly. And Yes and no, that's true. But God is saying to the Israelites, this is the one that will get you free. This is the plague. I know I've sent nine and nothing's, ha- nothing's happened. You're still in slavery, but this is the one that will get you out of Egypt. I'm acting on your behalf and putting an end to your slavery, but here's what you need to do. Eat a Passover meal, and when you slay the lamb, take the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorposts, and the angel will pass over. Why did the Israelites have to put blood on their door? If the judgment is only against the Egyptians, why do they have to have this symbol of faith and trust in God? 
It's because the angel of judgment doesn't come to get the bad people and rescue the good people. It doesn't come against the Egyptians only to enshrine the Israelites. It doesn't come to reward the us's and get the them's. The Israelites, too, had to put, they had to put blood on their doors because even in this historical context, while the Egyptians were the oppressor, oppressors and Israel was the enslaved victims, given different circumstances, what lies at the bottom of every human heart could turn the tables in an instant. Haven't we seen this over and over in history where former colonies get liberated from their colonial powers and then they turn on their own population and begin to enslave and oppress them? Americo-Liberians were former slaves who migrated over to Liberia, and they eventually gain power and come to rule, and they rule with an iron fist, exploiting and abusing the African native population in Liberia. Oppressed become oppressors because what lies at the heart of the oppressed and the oppressor is the very same thing. The Israelites have to put blood on their door. As, represented, as representative of the fact that they are utterly helpless. The blood on the door is an admission that we're all accountable to God. We're all dependent upon his mercy, not just the, the Egyptians. We all need his Passover. And what he's saying, what God is saying in Exodus, is you won't be saved tonight without a substitutionary sacrifice. Either there's a dead lamb or a dead son. And Jesus is reenacting this truth, this offering of peace. But he only gives them the bread and the wine. Where's the main course? Where's the main dish? There's no lamb. It's not a complete meal. Conspicuous absence of a lamb. Verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. For you, on behalf of you, instead of you. There's a substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus is saying is in his blood, not a physical animal lamb, but him as the final lamb of sacrifice. Firstborn sons are saved because God offers up his firstborn son. Jesus is the lamb at the Passover meal. Life again through death. Upside down, you go back to go forward. But we really haven't explained yet why death in the first place. Why is death the way that God chooses to give life? We need to look at, finally, the exercise. How do we exercise this Lord's table? Imagine a dad and a daughter out for a walk. And the dad has taken the daughter out for a walk in order to show and tell her how much he loves her. And he's saying over and over, honey, I love you. I love you. I love you. But he doesn't think that she's quite grasping the depth and the breadth of his love. And so along the way, they come by a river and he says, do you know how much I love you? No, daddy, how much? And he jumps in the river and drowns. Is that love? Is that an expression of love? What does that tell her? Well, it tells her that he's kind of a jerk. You don't show love by committing suicide. You don't show love by not protesting when someone is about to kill you. You say, no way, I have a family to take care of. No way, I have followers to take care of. If you kill me, they'll scatter. 
You don't show love simply by dying. You show love by living. Now, nobody doubts Jesus died, but unless he died for you, unless he died on behalf of you, unless he died instead of you, you shouldn't see it as an expression of love. Instead, it's just suicide. It's irrational. You have to deal with Jesus' choice of death and say it's either a choice, a death that he chooses on behalf of others, or it's a completely irrational act. Either there's no other way and he had to die, or there's any number of ways to access God and his, tra- his death is a tragic publicity stunt. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad die relatively victorious. They die of natural causes much later in life with their loved ones, and they have great religions that are following them. Why would Jesus, who otherwise appears to be lucid and rational, keep pushing ahead to Jerusalem? Since chapter 9, he's been on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to meet death. Why would he do that? Why would he act so irrationally unless there is no other way? And in fact, it's not an irrational act. It's the utter, an act of utter rationality because it's an act of service and self-sacrifice, submitting to death on your behalf and my behalf. It wasn't only to show he loved you. Love doesn't throw itself in a river. But love does throw itself in front of a bus. Love does throw itself in front of a bullet. Love does throw itself in front of judgment, of yours and of mine. Jesus won't be put into the pantheon of other gods. When you come to the table, you are enshrining him as the God. You're enshrining him as the king of the world. Whether they're gods of other religions or the gods of our own desires and pursuits, when you come to the table, you're dethroning those gods and you're enshrining Jesus as your true king, your true Lord. That's what's happening as you come to the meal. And that's why we often say, if you're not a Christian, don't yet come to the meal. It's an invitation to come to Jesus, but don't yet come because what you're saying is inconsistent with who you are. If you haven't yet said to Jesus, you are the true king of the world, you are the Lord and master of my life, and I'm stepping down off my own throne, if you haven't done that yet, the meal doesn't make any sense for you where you are in the journey. Come instead to Jesus. Eating this meal is an exercise of worship. It's taking Jesus on his terms. It's saying that I am no longer the Lord and master of my own life. But get this, he says, not just this is my body, but eat and drink. You have to enact something. You have to come to the table. You have to take hold of Jesus. The slaughter of the lamb and the covering of the doorposts with with blood was a test of Israel's faith. Did the Israelites really believe that tonight they would be set free? After all, God had already sent nine plagues, and yet tomorrow morning they're due to show up at the brick factory. They've got to go back to work because the plagues aren't working. And God says, this time, this one will be the one. You will finally be set free. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Do you see yourself as utterly helpless and hopeless except for my mercy and my grace and my action on your behalf? If so, paint your doorpost. It's not that the angel of judgment 
couldn't tell who was Egyptian and who was Israelite, the doorpost was a sign, an act of faith, that they believed in Yahweh. They believed in God as their only hope for deliverance. The whole meal was an act of tremendous reality-denying, Pharaoh-denying faith. And when we take and eat, it's not a simple affair. It's a radical step of self-denial. It's an act of faith and submission. When you come to this table, it is putting the blood on the doorpost and saying, my only hope for deliverance is the mercy of God. That's it. There's nothing I can do to gain my own freedom. There's nothing I can do to run out of slavery. I am enslaved to myself. I'm enslaved to sin. I'm enslaved to my own pride and vanity. And the only way, the only solution is blood on the doorpost. It's this meal and what it represents. It's stepping into the world where God alone brings exodus, where God alone brings freedom through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The past of your salvation is brought forward, and the future of your salvation is brought backwards into the present. Into the present. And as you eat and drink, it's no longer part of your history alone, but it becomes your story. It becomes your memory. It becomes embedded in who you are. Now, I may get this illustration wrong because this is a kind of a technical thing. And I always look at you people in the, in the audience that I know are technical science people, and I get it wrong. But think about the difference in RAM memory and ROM memory. RAM memory is ready access memory. It's what your operating system runs on. It's what runs the programs. The read-only memory is what lies in the background. It's that memory that's on your hard disk that is somewhere there, but you have to access it. How do you access it? You access it through the programs running on RAM memory. Do you see the table, your salvation if you're a Christian, the act of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf can become embedded in your raw memory. It can be back there in the spider webs and cobwebs of your head. But what the Lord's table does is it's the ram. It's the window through which you access that fact, that truth, that thing that you know you believe, but you have to be remembered, reminded. You have to remember. You have to see it. This table becomes the ram. It becomes the window through which you see everything else, through life. It's not just ram, but ram. It becomes your story. It becomes embedded in your operating system. It tells you who you are, a person, a people saved by the mercy of Jesus. And it tells you who God is. Over and over, each and every week, it says that the only one who has claim on your life has given up that claim and through his own son has given his life. He has claim over your life. He gives it up so that you can have life. That's what we're saying as we come to this table. In conclusion, I'm probably one of the only pastors that I know that hasn't read Lord of the Rings like 12 times. I, I know people that read it like every year as, as the holidays come around or whatever. I've read The Hobbit, but I've never read Lord of the Rings. But I'm told there's a place where the Hobbit Pippin is standing at the gates of the city that's been broken through, and in comes this great witch king. He comes through the gate and he's about to destroy the city and devour Pippin. When off in the distance, Pippin hears what? He hears horns, the horns of the king of Rohan. And his riders have come to the rescue. 
And even though the king dies on that day, the city is saved and Pippin is saved. And Tolkien says, from that day on, Pippin could no longer hear the sound of distant horns without breaking down into tears. Why? Because the horns reminded him it was a living memory of his salvation. It was the memory of the one who had died for him. And the horns, wherever they blew, made him break down in tears because it was a living memory. It wasn't just something that made him remember It made him embody. It brought him back to that place where he experienced it all over again. This is what saved me. The horn of salvation came and blew, and I was saved and rescued. That memory resided in his brain. He knew in some way that the king had saved him, but when the horns blew, he knew it in a different way. It can rest in the back dusty, cobweb places of our minds, but when you come to the table, you're brought back to where it's the center. You're put back into your RAM memory. It's not just new information, but it's an impression. It's not just that you learn something new. You may not. It's an impression of the gospel. It draws you to that place. It's the horn of salvation. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And friends, there are so many things that are needed and necessary in the Christian life. If you're a Christian you want to grow, of course, there's hearing the word preached. There's reading it together. There's community. There's fellowship. There's service. There's mission. All of these things together enable you to grow, enable you to become more like Jesus. But without this table, you'll starve. This table is the centerpiece of what we do on Sunday morning because it explains, it shows, it's a reenactment of the salvation that you claim to have if you're a Christian. It's not only reminding us and connecting us with the sad moment where Jesus goes to his death, but also when he will return triumphant, that the king of the world gives up his rights, gives up his life so that you and have life. As we come to the table in just a moment, would you take hold of that life? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all of the ways that you instruct us, that you teach us, that you embrace us, that you show your welcome to us through this meal, through what is a severe sacrifice on your behalf. Father, I pray that we would not take it lightly, that we would not underestimate it, that we instead would come with a heart that wants to be changed, that wants to see Jesus afreshed. Not with fear, but with anxious joy would we come and celebrate this meal together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.